Our sermon text this morning is going to sound incredibly familiar because you just heard a bunch of it. It's from uh, Mark chapter 8. We read from Matthew 16, but they cover the same thing um, with, with slight differences. So, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, uh, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Let's pray. Uh, Father, uh, send your spirit that we may see Jesus more clearly. Uh, Send your spirit that we may be sustained and strengthened uh, in the midst of the various struggles that we're experiencing, the um, confusion we have about what's going on in our, our lives as an individual or our culture or our families. Help us to see Jesus more clearly so we can hope in him more fully. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, there's something in my Netflix queue that I, that really intrigues me, but we haven't gotten there yet. Um, Apparently, our Netflix queue is too large. We haven't been spending enough time during the COVID crisis watching TV. Imagine that, okay? But it's called Tell Me Who I Am. And this is why it fascinated me. It's, it's basically a documentary about two brothers, twin brothers. One of them is named Alex, and Alex has a motorcycle accident and loses his memory. He can't remember anything, and he can't remember anybody, which I'm sure was a great disappointment to his parents and his girlfriend, except one person, the only person he remembered or recognized was his brother, Marcus. And so in his attempt to figure out who he was, okay, he's talking about identity, not just History, what has happened to me, what has my life been like, but who am I? He asks his brother. Marcus said this about this process of his, you know, his brother's question to him. When Alex came back from the hospital, he didn't know who his mother was. He didn't know his house. He didn't know his bedroom. He didn't know his girlfriend. He didn't know he was in England. He didn't know anything. But he knew me. He knew who I was. If you've only got one fact in your mind, one thing that you know 100%, one thing that is yours of your own, not something that anybody's given you, then you build everything around that one fact. 
I, I think it's incredibly insightful. And that's where that idea of identity comes in. That one fact had to do with his identity, and he was going to build his life on that identity. This passage is about identity. It's not so much about your identity, it's about the identity of Jesus. And that's one fact that we can build our lives upon. But we have to make sure we get it right. That we have the fullness of who Jesus is, as we'll see some people didn't have that. So it's almost as if we could ask, if Jesus asked you who he was, what might you say? This this is sort of addressed in verses 27 and 28 of our passage here in Mark 8. And we see, first off, that Jesus went to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And uh, hopefully we have our little map that's coming up. There we go. Good. You see Caesarea Philippi way up there in the red letters? That's about 25 miles north of Bethsaida, which is where Jesus and his disciples had been. Uh, They made this long journey, probably uh, walking up alongside the Jordan River, since it's probably easier to walk alongside the river than it is in the foothills, uh, making their way to this place known as Caesarea Philippi. It's at the base of Mount Hermon, and uh, it is one of the three heads of the River Jordan. Okay, There's a spring that flows out, and that spring will become important in, in, a, in a little bit. But what I want you to understand about Caesarea Philippi before we go much further is, of course, uh, at this point, it's in Gentile territory. It used to belong to uh, the Israelites, but it had since been taken over, so to speak. Last week, we closed with Psalm 133, and it talked about the dew of Mount Hermon. Because the dew of Mount Hermon flows down and into the Jordan River, which was a significant river for the Israelites. But what I want you to know about Caesarea Philippi is essentially two things. One is that it was renowned for its debauchery. It had shrines to the god Baal and his consort Asherah. And, of course, their worship was incredibly immoral, corrupt, and debaucherous. And when your worship is that way, guess what happens to your culture? There's no restraints upon your culture. And as if it wasn't bad enough, here comes Alexander the Great, and as part of his great conquest of uh, the known world at that point in time, uh, he conquered that city And one of the things that happened in that whole process of Hellenization, which took place, uh, was that they built a temple to the god Pan. And uh, Pan probably seems pretty innocuous to most of us. Uh, But even with a uh, safe search on the internet for images, uh, things that have been found uh, about the god Pan, he was a debaucherous mess. Essentially, if it moved, he chased it. Animal, human. And so, if you could think of the worst of human sexuality, it's, res- it's represented in Pan. 
And so the debauchery of, the, of Baal worship begin to pale in comparison to the debauchery of the pan worship for which this city is known. Jesus is walking into the heart of evil territory, a blatant, in-your-face, Sodom and Gomorrah kind of evil territory. But it's not just that. You see, it had been destroyed, and, and now we see the power of Rome beginning to arise. Uh, because you know, at first you have uh, Herod the Great uh, building parts of it, but then it was really rebuilt by Herod Philip during the lifetime of Jesus. He renames it Caesarea, but there was another Caesarea, uh, and so it's known as Caesarea Philippi because of Philip. Uh, but what he did, and, and the reason he named it Caesarea, was because he built a temple to Caesar. And so it is a center of Caesar worship within the region. And so Jesus is going to this place known for its debauchery, known for, I guess I'll do three things, known for its idolatry, as well as for a symbol of Roman power and oppression. Instead of hiding from it, Jesus is bringing his disciples to the heart of it for an important moment. It's in the shadow of these symbols of debauchery, idolatry, and Roman power that Jesus poses this key question to his disciples. Who do people say that I am? He has gotten them away from the voices of the crowd, from the influence of the people, and he's asking about the impression that his teaching, that his healings, and his exorcism have had upon not the disciples, but those who have seen, those who have heard. What are you hearing on the streets? It's almost a Rasmussen poll. I don't know. But he's polling his disciples about this. And they give three answers. Now, I'm sure there were more answers. It was almost, this could almost be like Family Feud, the three most important answers, the most popular answers. Not sure exactly what it is. Um, because, of course, this is not the Pharisees who had a very different answer to this question. Uh, they would say lunatic or sorcerer. But what the answer of the people was, was John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. Now, all of these answers had to do with prophets. Okay. All of them had to do with the preparation for the coming of Messiah. But, okay, we have again this idea that somehow Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead, okay, which is one of the things that Herod had picked up on. But we also see this uh, idea of Elijah uh, taken from Malachi, uh, that he's the, he's the forerunner who's going to come. And of course, the people not realizing that John the Baptist functioned as Elijah. Okay, But again, there's this emphasis on someone is coming to prepare the way for the end with a capital E. The end that is ushered in by Messiah, capital E. Now, some Jewish writings said that Jeremiah and often Isaiah were two prophets that would return before the Messiah, particularly because they were prophets of judgment 
and then hope. Now, as we think about what this means, we should recognize that they're viewing Jesus as more than an ordinary dude on the street. He, he's not just someone that you might meet. Uh, they're recognizing that Jesus has a special function uh, within the life of Israel. He has the function of a prophet uh, and perhaps a very significant prophet. But still, this isn't the whole truth about who Jesus is. There's something missing. And if we go back for a moment to uh, this story of tell me who I am, what I'm going to see when I watch it, uh, while I'm on vacation, is that when Marcus told his brother who he was, he left out one very important thing. That there was a dark secret with regard to his family that he did not share with his brother and that one thing changes everything. There's a sense in which his brother ends up thinking he's someone else as a result. Identity matters. Now, let's recognize here, and there's something that, that I've been you know, hitting that drum a little bit, because Mark, I believe, has been hitting that drum a little bit in the last few weeks, that human reason can't pull all the pieces together to really fully understand who Jesus is. Uh, that you, with your own powers of reason and deduction, can't really figure out who Jesus is. And we're going to return to that thought later. But let's know that the first answer to the first question is that humanity struggles to deal with the truth about Jesus. And so if you walk up to somebody on the streets and you ask, who is Jesus, which actually is not a bad way to do evangelism, it really kind of gets to the heart of the matter, okay? But you're going to get some really funky answers because people can't fully grasp who Jesus is. But what about the disciples? Uh, Jesus is asked about the people. Now, uh, Jesus is going to say, who do you say that I am? And so there's a, there's a sense of, of, of two points of emphasis there. You, this goes up to the front of the sentence, okay? Who do you say that I am? Am. Everything is hanging on this for his disciples. Everything hangs on this in Mark's gospel. This is the hinge point of his entire gospel. Up until now, you've, I mean, it begins with this idea of Jesus is the Messiah, okay? The, the Son of the living God. Uh, but up to this point, it's been proof after proof, after proof that he is the Messiah. All the signs and wonders that, that Jesus has been performing are intended to lead the reader and his disciples to this point. It's the hinge. Because after this moment, Jesus' message and the tone of the gospel of Mark is going to shift dramatically. 
It's going, to, it's going to shift to, well, what does it mean that he's Messiah? Now that we know he's Messiah, what does that mean for him and for us? And so it's not only the hinge for this gospel of Mark, but it's also the hinge for the gospel message. And so this idea of identity, and particularly the identity of Jesus, is of utmost importance. Let's think of it this way. In a few days, I have to sneak into New Hampshire um, and give a eulogy for my mom. And one of the things that I've, I, I talked with my dad the other day, and this kind of came up, it, it, there's a sense in which I don't know who my mother is. And by that I mean this. She almost never talked about herself. I mean, uh, there's my experience with my mother. Okay, I, I know who she is to a degree from the shared history that we have. But there's very little I know that happened before I was aware. <laughs> before I was three. I mean, I have memories when I was like three. I'm weird, I know. Okay. But before that, it's, it's like I know a couple things, I've, just, I've deduced a few things, uh, but I have to depend on other people to really know who she was. And that, that, that vacuum, so to speak, is, is, is there before me, and it really colors what I think about my mother and how I interact with my mother and how I try to communicate about my mother to other people. If you don't know who Jesus is, you have a hard time talking about who Jesus is. And there's going to be a lot of gaps about who Jesus is if you, speak, if you uh, try to speak about him. Well, if you were to put money down on which disciple would answer the question that Jesus asked, who would it be? And you would get money back. Okay? You would have won your bet. Because it's always Peter. He's the impetuous one. He's the bold one. And sometimes that's really good. And sometimes it's not so good. And when I get back from vacation, well, actually, we've got to postpone that. But eventually, when we get back to Mark, we're going to see where it wasn't good. Okay? But right here, for the moment, it's good. You are the Christ or the Messiah. You are the anointed one. You are the one upon whom the Holy Spirit has been poured. You are the servant of God that we've been waiting for. And so into this, uh, we have uh, you know, kind of poured out into it. I mean, he's not coming at this from a vacuum. He's most likely thinking of passages like Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. And so the Spirit is poured upon Jesus in order to bring justice to the nations. Similarly, we see in Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Who is the me? The servant of the Lord. 
Okay? Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Again, the Spirit is poured. Why? For justice. Not the sham justice that we see on TV. Real justice. Not the corruptions of justice that that some sinful hearts cry for, but true justice. A justice that does, in fact, bind up the brokenhearted. Hears their cries and responds, but responds in a way that is good and just, not just firm. In other words... Jesus is not the guy who prepares the way for the guy. Jesus is the guy for whom the way has been prepared. He's not the one who prepares the way, but he is the one for whom the way has already been prepared. Luke And his account of this uh, clarifies it a little bit because Peter there says, you are the Christ of God. Okay, Now, I'm sure he said this. Mark, for his own reasons, did not include the of God part. That's okay. It shouldn't be a major trauma to anybody. Okay, the, the, the selective editing of the gospel writers. It's, it's, it shouldn't be a crisis. If it is, we can talk about it. But the focus here is that he has been sent and that he has been appointed by God to represent God as the Messiah. This is not something that he's taken upon himself. He's not someone who said, hey, I'm reading about this stuff in the Old Testament. Wouldn't it be cool if there was that person? Hey, won't it be cool if I become that person? That's not what we have in here. What we have here is sent and chosen, appointed, anointed by God the Father to come as the Messiah. What's fascinating is that Matthew has a slightly different twist. There are other words that that, uh, Peter said uh, that are significant. He is the Christ, Son of the living God. He's not merely a man who has been has the Spirit poured upon him, but he is in fact the God-man who has come to rescue fallen people. So oh, where are we to go with all of this data that we have about who Jesus is? And we need to remember that it is Jesus, not Caesar. Okay? Remember, he's writing to Rome. How does Caesar usually speak about himself? That he is the son of God. What what is this whole temple in in Caesarea Philippi? It's basically saying he is God. He is to be worshipped for his excellence. And Mark is saying it is Jesus, not Caesar, who is the true son of the living God, who in fact rules the world, who is the fulfillment of of Psalms 2. And he's going to rule the world with justice. What does that mean? Sometimes I think about 
my um, tea with Steve after I hit end. And I thought about that this past weekend. James 5. Isn't it fascinating? Um, because he's, ta- he's talking, James is talking about justice. And James hits both sides of the problem. In that case, it was a problem of the rich and the poor. And of course, he was speaking to the church in chapter 2, don't play favorites. Okay, Favoritism is a sin. You're not loving your neighbor. Okay, So if you're prejudging your neighbor by their economic status or color of their skin, you are sinning. Okay, Because you're not loving your neighbor. But when... In, in chapter 5, when James speaks, he, he's warning the rich about the judgment to come. Okay, So uh, Jesus addresses the rich oppressor. Okay, Because that's what was going on. They were withholding wages. That's how they, they maintained and hoarded their wealth was the maintaining of wages. But, but James doesn't stop there. He also speaks to the poor, the people who have been oppressed, and he says, don't complain. God is judge of both, not only one. And so when we think about Jesus and his bringing of judgment, um, we tend to think of, yay, he's going to get that guy. And we forget, oh, I'm a sinner too. And maybe I didn't do what that guy did, but I've done some pretty bad stuff. And if I think about James 2, it says that the one lawgiver has given the whole law, so to break one law means that you are a lawbreaker. You can't say, yippee for me, I didn't murder anybody, I'm just an adulterer, which is the example that James gives, not that I'm giving personally, please. You can't say, I didn't kill somebody, I just destroyed their property. When we stand before God, that excuse is stripped from us because Jesus is just. But who is Caesar? We have to go, I think, to Revelation 12. And we see that there's the dragon, Satan, and, and the dragon in, in Revelation 12 makes war on the rest of the offspring because it can't kill the promised child. It makes war on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, to be more specific. And then Revelation 12 ends with the dragon standing at, on the sand of the sea, And then when it continues in 13, we see that from the sea, the dragon summons the first beast. The beast leads the people to worship the dragon. And it says there in verse 4, chapter 13, They worship the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? 
Verse 7, jumping down to that, and it was allowed, meaning the beast, was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Rome was a manifestation of the beast of Revelation 13. Don't think that that just, you know, it refers to some future time that we don't know about, you know, the, this, this, uh, tribulation that we're not going to be here because of some rapture thing, okay? Yes. Amillennialist. If you don't know what that means, we can talk about it later. I don't have time for it now because I'm running late. Um, but it describes the present. Uh, there are many beasts and essentially government begins to function as the beast when it begins to take all the power to itself. It functions as the beast when it fails to recognize the rights of Jesus Christ as king of the universe. It functions as the beast when it begins to cry for your allegiance above anyone or anything else. And so there's a warning that comes with this. Don't look to the beast to solve the problems. The beast is part of the problem. And I'll, okay, we have a U.S. Marshal in the building. I'm not, I'm not talking about insurrection here. Okay? But I'm, saying, I'm talking about what is the allegiance of your heart? Where is your hope placed Is it placed on this Jesus who's revealed as the Messiah, or is it somewhere else? Or are you thinking, oh, well, my spiritual hope is in Jesus, but my physical, my my economic hope and, and everything, my political hope is set on who gets elected in November? No. Yes, vote. But recognize that whoever gets elected, if it's your guy or gal, whatever it might be, they ain't Jesus and they ain't Savior, even though they promise to basically be Savior. The beast seeks to destroy the church. Governments are not our hope, but they are in fact relentless and accumulating power to this godlike status that they want. It's not just China, people. There is, because of our fallenness, a quest for power that is illegitimate and never ceasing. Always question people who are running for political office. They might sound like they have good motives, but that's only because their policies agree with you. But often it's about power. That's why we have these warnings throughout Scripture, and particularly the Psalms. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Psalm 118. Psalm 146 Put, your, uh, put not your trust in princes, in the Son of Man, in whom there is no salvation. Uh, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth, or the dust, and that very day his plans perish. 
And so would the people of Rome come to confess Jesus as Christ, the Christ of God, or would they be continuing to trust in Caesar for their hopes and salvation? Well, but it's, it's not just written to them, it's also written for us. Will Tucson confess Christ as, the, as Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, or will we trust in our princes, our mayor, our governor, our president, our senators? So we are to confess that Jesus is the Messiah sent by God. Which brings us to the third kind of question I have today, which uh, is, I think, answered in verse 30, but also we see in Matthew 16, verses 17 through 18. Jesus affirms Peter with what he says, with as far as he goes. He says that Peter is blessed precisely because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. In other words, what Peter is saying is something, especially when we consider um, how the things that, that Matthew added to this or recounted that Mark left out, Peter is not primed to confess uh, that Jesus is the Christ, particularly the Son of the living God. Because all of his life he has heard the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. Now there it's talking about unity, not uh, mathematical oneness. And yet, that's how people hear it. That's how Peter would have heard it. And so his confession is, is controversial, which is for Jewish people, and understandably so, because unless the Father shines the light in your eyes, you're not going to get it. This is not the result of Peter's own reasoning. It is not the result of human teaching. Rather, Jesus says, my Father who is in heaven has shown this to you. God must open spiritual eyes in order to know the truth of who Jesus is. God must open our spiritual eyes to know who Jesus is. And then Jesus does the inexplicable and it's similar to what we've seen again and again. He heals somebody and he says, don't tell anybody. And so here is Peter makes this awesome confession, a confession for which he is praised, humanly speaking. And Jesus says, don't tell anybody. And it's, it's emphasized here. He strictly charged them the, the way the, the construction goes. He's making it abundantly clear. It's not just, hey, you know, by the way, just, between you and me, don't tell anybody. No. He's, he's, he's charging all of the disciples. Don't tell anybody. Why? In part because they did not fully understand. Remember the blind guy that Mark had just written about? The guy who, whose restoration of his sight was partial at first? I see people, but they're like trees walking around. That's Peter. That's the disciples. They can see 
trees walking around, but they can't yet see the fullness of it, which is going to be revealed because right now, you know, the, well, I'll jump to that. Uh, Jesus begins to teach, I'm not going to steal all of the thunder for the future, but he begins to teach what the Messiah is really like, and Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke Jesus. We need the full understanding of who Jesus is is as Messiah. That's why Jesus doesn't want them to speak. They haven't gotten it fully yet, but they've gotten it. Mark shifts from the proof of Jesus as Messiah to his role as the suffering Messiah. And that's what Peter's going to rebuke him about. No, you're not supposed to suffer. Yes, Peter, I am. And when you speak like that, you talk like Satan. So, shh. We, in other words, are to grow in our understanding of who Jesus is over time by continuing to go back to the Scriptures and to think through the Scriptures and pray for God to give us understanding. And it's as we understand who Jesus is, we have a greater understanding of what the Gospel is. And this morning in the pastoral prayer, I prayed for Tim Keller because he was just diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And I owe Tim Keller an incredible debt uh, because he was someone who helped me see Jesus more clearly and to be able to communicate that more clearly. So if you're thinking, I'm not communicating clearly now, you just should go back to the old stuff. (laughs) But that idea of helping people to grow in their understanding of who Jesus is and communicating that in a way that they get it, so uh, humanly speaking anyway, because, of course, the Holy Spirit's got to work or that or anything, but you're not putting obstacles in the way, that's my point, so they can more fully understand the gospel, believe it, and experience the blessings that the gospel holds out for us. Let's go back to Matthew, though. Matthew implies that this encounter takes place uh, by the gates of hell, or at least he mentions the gates of Hades or hell. And some have believed that this is a cave nearby with a flowing spring. And so uh, some people, you'll, you'll go, if you go online, you'll see a picture like this. Um, and that pool, you see that water running down, well, it used to be before an earthquake, uh, there used to be a lot of water flowing out of there, and that's where the temple to Pan was as well. And so uh, it's believed that this is rumored. It's, it's hard to figure out if this, if this is really true or not, you know, or whether it just sounds cool. Um, but supposedly it was rumored that Baal and Asherah in the fall would use this cave to descend to hell or Hades, awaiting the uh, rituals of worship in the spring that would call them forth to rise again and bring fertility to the land. Okay? So that's what a lot of people think. 
I'm agnostic, so to speak, on whether that is true or not. But let's pretend it is true for a moment. When Jesus says, who do you say that I am? The answer is the true God who gives life to be worshipped in holiness, not in a debauched way of the worshippers of Baal and Pan and Caesar. But there's also the way the Psalms use this phrase, gates of Sheol, which in Hebrew, I'm sorry, in Greek gets translated into gates of Hades. Okay? For instance, Psalm 9. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of Sheol, or death. The gates of Sheol, Hades, or hell represent death. And so when Jesus says that that on this rock I will build my church and even the gates of hell will not prevail against it, one significant way to understand that is even death won't overcome it. Even the death of himself, okay, which he's about to move into in, in this account, but also the death of his servants, his apostles. Satan's going to try to extinguish the church. Hey, that whole thing there about from Revelation 13. But it's not going to stop the kingdom. It's going to prevail. It's going to spread. And eventually it was going to overthrow Rome. In a spiritual sense, not in a geographic political sense. But we see that it's similar to Elijah on Mount Carmel, Jesus is the conqueror. Jesus is going to conquer not with armies, but he's going to conquer spiritually by transforming cultures through faith and repentance. As the, the message is heralded out that there is salvation to be found in this Jesus who is the Messiah. That's the kind of conquering that's talking about here. Not Green Beret, not SEALs, not uh, nuclear weapons or anything else that you might think of. But the message of Christ and Him crucified for sinners. So who do you say that I am? The disciples should be responding at that moment, the God who doesn't run from evil, but rather confronts it. That's who Jesus is. And we have to understand this. We have to understand who Jesus is. It's a silly story to kind of illustrate this. About someone else's identity. Alice Cooper was on the radio the other night. He's got, he's got, his, he's got his show. So I was listening to his show and I was driving back from somewhere. I can't remember who it was. Oh, it was last night, I think. I was picking up dinner. Driving back. There he is, and he says, yeah, I was on a plane back in the early 70s, probably 71, 72, and I was sitting next to this old, older couple. They look kind of feeble. And the, the woman looks over at him, and in, in as kind a way as she possibly can, says, you have long hair. Are you in a band? And he goes, yes, ma'am. Alice Cooper. 
which I'm sure she had no knowledge of whatsoever. <laughs> From Michigan, by the way. Um, and they begin to talk a little bit, and she goes, my son's in a band. He changed his name. We're the Zimmermans. Wait a minute. You're from, I think it was Higby, Minnesota? Yeah, that's where we live. Your son is Bob Dylan? <laughs> yeah. Ma'am, your son is the most famous singer in the world. Does that mean he's doing okay? <laughs> she knew her son, and yet she didn't know her son. We can know Jesus a little bit, but not enter fully into his joy if we don't know all that he is. Our identity shapes our experience of the world, but it also shapes our experience of other human beings. This guy, Alex Lewis, lived as if this dark secret about his family didn't happen. Our sense of other people's identities also shape how we treat them. The Zimmermans hadn't entered into the joy of their son and his success. We don't enter the, do the joy of Jesus and his salvation if we don't know who he is. Instead of wearily trying to find or make our own identity before God, Jesus freely shares his identity with us by faith. So if we're to wrap all this thing up, spiritual sight sees Jesus as the Messiah. For those of you who are now looking at your third point and wondering what is it is that, that those blanks should be, well, Jesus is the Messiah who conquers through suffering there. Some of you, Thank you. here you go. <laughs> All right. Realized I skipped over that. Well, we pray. Father, I thank you that, um, well, we all struggle with identity. Who we are and our place in the world and things like that. And it doesn't take an accident and the loss of memory for us to struggle with these things. Uh, and Father, we, we confess that we weary ourselves out trying to make names for ourselves just like the people of Babel. But we thank you that you sent Jesus into the world as the Messiah to save sinners like us. And not only that, but to give us his identity. And when we're called a Christian, it means that we're bearing his identity. That we didn't have to weary ourselves out, but that you freely gave this identity to us, this incredible privilege and blessing that we don't deserve. And it's ours because Jesus won it for us. And so help us to grow in our understanding of who Jesus is so that we might grow in our understanding of what the gospel is, so that we might live in ways that are um, free and full of love for other people, free from uh, uh, the anxiety and the weariness 
the fear that so often accompany those who don't really know who they are or have a wrong sense of who they are. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.